Okay, the question was, what is the flopping frequency? Student answer, the frequency at which the system flops between two states in, in a two-state system. I could have called it the flipping frequency. Yes! That is so general, that's awesome. Does that really count? Answer. You put it in quotes. No offense. Uh, you have to define flops. What does flops mean? They sort of explain it in the problem. John Kerry's campaign. Oh. Oh. Ouch. Sorry, the other guy's years too late. <laughs> why does the, why does the perturbation assumption break down as T gets larger? Basically you have some sinusoidal oscillation. You expand the sine term, keeping just the linear piece. So you have sine omega t, you approximate sine omega t by omega t then eventually that will be a bad approximation when t gets big. You'll need the second order term and the third order term. Didn't understand how the probability of a transition is greatest when the driving frequency is close to the natural frequency. So think of a swing. If you push on the swing at the right time, the amplitudes build up. Quantum mechanics works the same way. So if you have a quantum harmonic oscillator, if you push it at the right time, the amplitudes will build up. Uh, how do experimentalists find the flopping frequency? So if you prepare your system and put in this time-dependent perturbation and then wait some amount of time, make your measurement and see which state it's in. Now repeat it exactly the same with exactly the same initial system, but wait a different amount of time. So you prepare identical systems and repeat the measurement at different times. You can trace out the oscillation and the probability. That's the simplest way. I did not get the part that CA squared plus CB squared equals 1 to first order in H prime. So if it's a two-level system, then CA squared plus CB squared is supposed to be equal to 1, independent of anything else. It's just some of the probabilities have to add up to 1. But if you only calculated them approximately to first order in H prime, then when you plug in what you found, you might find that there's some h prime squared term that doesn't add up correctly. So it's one up to terms of order h prime squared. When we look at the frequencies of photons, will this time-dependent perturbation play a larger role in identifying blackbody radiation? So we already worked out blackbody radiation without knowing any details about the interactions because we got to assume that it was an equilibrium. But now if we want to look at an individual photon interacting with some individual atom, then we'll need to know the details of that interaction. So we'll need the time-dependent perturbation theory. Uh, can we solve time-dependent perturbation theory for a system of two levels? Uh, we can solve it for two levels. Can we solve a system of many levels analytically? Um, maybe in this if you read the problem about the rotating wave approximation, there's an exact perturbation which you could, which makes the rotating wave approximation exact, and then you can solve it for the two-level system. You could probably solve the three-level system for a similar type of perturbation that's chosen to make the perturbation theory easy. But in general, no. Are there any methods for solving or approximating the energy or wave functions when the time-dependent Hamiltonian is not small enough compared to the time-independent Hamiltonian. Um, so then you have to get into some numerical approximation, probably. So do a simulation. In general, I mean, in general for the perturbed system, what would change in Griffith's equation for d by dt of ca and cb in 913? If the original system at t equals zero is a linear combination of the two states psi a and psi b. So we're solving a differential equation in time and we're given some initial condition. In the text he just chose ca equals one and cb equals zero as an example. You could choose any other linear combination. <coughs> um, it's just a different initial condition. So solving the differential equation is exactly the same and then you just impose whatever initial condition you wanted. I'm getting really confused about Griffith's superscripts versus quantity squared scripts, especially since now he's changed notation again. So 
like you have a sharper eye than me. I didn't notice that he changed notation. He but that he changed notation. Okay. Or rather, that he's not putting in parentheses. He's not. He's what? He's not putting stuff in parentheses. Parentheses. Yeah. It's, oh, for the superscripts. Yeah. I'll so that's the, the more normal thing, right? That yeah, if there's parentheses, it's not a power. Hmm. Sometimes it means derivative, but. Yeah. Is this oscillation of probabilities of states at all related to neutrino oscillations? Yes. It's the same thing, just <coughs> for relativistic quantum mechanics. Uh, does this transition work for all atoms or only a select few elements? Not sure which transition they meant. Be, sounds like they're reading the next section. But uh, our, this time-dependent perturbation theory is going to allow us to calculate transitions. In principle, it will work in any atom as long as you have the wave functions for the initial and final level of the atom. Uh, trying to understand why the diagonal elements of the perturbation Hamiltonian typically vanish. So by typically, he means that if we apply it to electromagnetic radiation, and then there's two ways to see why it will vanish. One is that if you look at parity, like we did for the Stark effect, you'll need the wa initial wave function and the final wave function will have to have different parities, because well, we'll see why on Friday. Also, if it's electromagnetic radiation or light, photons carry angular momentum. So that means if they get absorbed or emitted, you have to change angular momentum. So you won't have a diagonal element. You'll have to go from a state with one angular momentum to a state with another angular momentum. Uh, how would you get the sine wave perturbation? Um, you know, as you'll see on the next page you read in the book, electromagnetic radiation will give you sinusoidal perturbations, and that's why we're so interested in sinusoidal perturbations. Uh, any other questions? So, um, yep? Does gravitational radiation give you some sort of... Like it's got spin too, so also, you shouldn't have, it, there shouldn't be any diagonal terms, so it should work similarly. Um, so I guess we'll have a runoff poll for the the makeup slash review lecture. So everyone will will narrow it. the top two winners will go to the final round. Then you'll have one more chance to vote. Pardon me. Um, I think it was like two. I'll have to maybe there. I didn't check this morning. Yesterday the leading ones were Tuesday at noon and Monday afternoon. At three, so I'll I'll check again what the final winners were and put the top two in the runoff round. Okay, so finally we're doing time-dependent perturbation theory. Oops, time-dependent perturbation theory. So now life gets interesting, because if there wasn't some interesting time dependence, I mean, all we've done so far is solve for states that are ex in exact energy eigenstates, so that they just have an e to the i e t over h bar. So nothing interesting actually happens. They just if you get them in this energy eigenstate, then they just sit there. Now interesting things are going to happen. So. We'll start with a two-level system because in practice you usually just pretend if you're looking at some atomic transition you just take your two levels to be the initial and final state and just ignore all the other ones because if your radiation is close to that, frequ that frequency to drive that transition it's not going to be close to the other ones usually. So we have an unperturbed Hamiltonian that has some energy eigenstates, psi A and psi B. And psi A and psi B are normalized. They're orthogonal because they're eigenstates. And so we know the solution of the time-dependent Schrodinger equation 
is some constant coefficient times the first wave function has an e to the minus i eat over h bar for its time dependence. And probabilities have to add up to 1, so ca squared plus cb squared equals 1. We've seen that uh, a million times now. Now we'll put in a time-dependent perturbation. So I think I forgot to put one of the questions on my list of questions. One of the questions was, in classical mechanics, if you have a time-dependent uh, piece in the Hamiltonian, it means energy isn't conserved. And that's also the case here, because the time-dependent perturbation is either putting energy into the system or taking energy out. Uh, <coughs> which is what we want to see in atomic transitions. We're absorbing photons or emitting photons. So those photons are carrying energy. So our full Hamiltonian is now H0 plus H prime, just like in time-independent perturbation theory. And so what we're going to do is uh, take a solution of this form make these constants out front time-dependent. And then plug that into the Schrodinger equation. So, on the left, we'll have the Hamiltonian hitting these wave functions when, so this is just some function of time, so h just multiplies that, but when it hits this wave function, it'll give us the energy eigenvalue. So on the left-hand side, we'll get ca ea psi a e to the minus i eat over h bar for the h naught term in the Hamiltonian, and there'll be a cb eb psi b e to the minus i eb t over h bar. And there'll also be the h prime term. So there'll be a ca h prime psi a e to the minus i e a t over h bar. Psi cb h prime psi b And that mass is supposed to be equal to the time derivative. So since the coefficients are time dependent, derivative can hit that. So there's a CA dot and a CB dot. And then the time derivative can hit that exponential. <coughs> psi A and Psi B are some spinners or some spatial wave functions. So if it hits the exponential, it'll bring down a minus I EA over H bar. And for the other one, it'll bring down a minus I EB over H bar. So those terms exactly cancel these terms. That was the zeroth order problem that we already solved. So what's left C A H prime of T acting on psi A with an E to the minus E A T over H bar and a C B term. that should be equal to IH bar times CA dot psi A e to the minus IEA T over H bar 
plus a CB dot an EB in the exponential. Now we can take an inner product psi A just like we did in time independent perturbation theory. So we'll get CA psi A H prime psi A to the minus E A T and a C B term with an E B in the exponential. And on the right hand side, since there's no Hamiltonians, there's just wave functions. Psi A and Psi B are orthonormal. We'll only pick up the psi a term. Psi h bar. And then we could do the same thing for take an inner product with psi b in the bra. Then this would be b a, b b, and c b dot. And then I did notice he changed notation. That in the time-independent perturbation theory, he called the matrix element of the perturbation W. Now he's calling it H prime. But uh, we all we all understand, right? He had a bad day when he decided to call it W, and now he's recovered. So, in terms of matrix elements of the perturbation, we have two equations. CA dot equals minus I over H bar, CA H prime AA plus CB H prime AB, and we've divided by the exponential multiplying those guys, so it appears with a minus sign in the last term. And then I have a similar equation for CB dot. Then we just have to solve this equation which is almost as hard as solving the Schrodinger equation in the first place. Just sort of factored out the uh, lowest order pieces. So we'll assume that we have a nice perturbation that doesn't have diagonal elements, which will be the case when we're emitting or absorbing photons. Yeah. Well, so the, ma the main application we're going to do is emitting and absorbing photons. They carry angular momentum, so they'll change <coughs> the angular momentum between the initial and final state. Because angular momentum still has to be conserved, just like energy. In general, it means that our perturbation is only making transitions. It's not shifting up levels at first order. And then we'll define the resonant frequency as the energy difference over h bar. It sounds like half the class has my gold. It's just me. I took some decongestant. I feel a little loopy. <laughs> so you have to go easy on me today. Don't yell when I make a mistake. Just say it gently. So if we don't have a diagonal perturbation, <coughs> then we've uh, 
get to drop two terms of our equation, now they look still impossible to solve. But they're getting shorter at least. That's always good. I can fit them both on one line. So, just for example, we'll suppose that the initial conditions were that at time zero, CA was one. I mean, CB at time zero was zero because the squares add up to one. And then we'll assume that H prime is actually small. So, H prime is a small perturbation. Then we have it. Zero, obvious zero with order approximation. The zero with order approximation is that we just keep the solution that we already had. The solution that we already had was that CA and CB were constants, so the zero with order solution is that CA remains one and CB remains zero. That's just the unperturbed solution. More interesting is first order. So we'll write the first order contribution to CA is minus I over H bar H prime AB. So H prime AB is first order. So that means the rest of the equation, everything can be zeroth order. And now with these simple initial conditions, the zeroth order CB was zero. So this guy's zero. That means, that tells us that at first order CAT stays one. But at first order CAB or C1b is going to be minus i over h bar h prime ba e to the i omega naught t. But now it's CA, zeroth order of t that appears. And that's 1. So this guy does change. So the solution of that equation, just integrate it. So we'll call the dummy time inside the integration t prime. So if I differentiate this, I just get this <coughs> integrand evaluated at t. So there, we did it. Formally, yeah? I'm just wondering, like, if you uh, were to insert those two coefficients into your wave function to get the, the new wave function, could mm -hmm. you verify the probability is conserved? Um, to order h prime, it's conserved. Because if you just if you just add up to c a squared plus c b squared to this order, c a squared to this order is one, uh, but c b squared is zero plus an h prime term. So it doesn't add up. The sum of the squares does not add up to one, but it adds up to something of order h prime squared which is a second order term. So at first order, there's an error that's second order. So if we go to second order, the error will be third order. But if you, if you summed over all of them, you'd know that the probabilities would sum to one. So yeah, if, if we did to all orders, it would remain one. So like, whatever we have at a given point in time, we can figure out the error, by figuring out how far it is from probability. Yeah. Is there another question? Just stay imaginary because you have the i up there, and then that works out to be when you're doing probability, you're actually multiplying it times this complex conjugate. Yeah. So then, does, can't you just get a mixed factor or zero? No, because I the modulus squared of i is one. 
right? So. So then we can keep going, go to second order. So second order, we need the first order solution, which is here. And then we can solve that equation. Just integrate it. And I'm imposing my boundary condition that at t equals 0 is 1. So I have 1 minus a correction. So I have to integrate this guy. So I call that dummy time t prime. And then inside that integration, there's another integration. Now we need a second dummy time integration. So there's one integration over t double prime and one integration over t prime. And <coughs> T prime is always bigger than T double prime. And then just keep going until you get tired. So uh, in general, those integrals are hard to do. So we'll focus on the simplest perturbations. So if we have uh, sinusoidal perturbations, which we can use for electromagnetism. So they're simple and useful. So we can imagine that we have some <coughs> coefficient that depends on the spatial position times a oscillating time-dependent piece. Then our matrix element of the perturbation Hamiltonian we'll have to take this spatial piece, um, the matrix element of that between the two states. So VAB is the overlap with the V of R put inside between the bra and the cat. And we're still assuming that there's no diagonal piece. So, for those sinusoidal perturbations, at first order, we can try to do that integral. So we have a cos omega t from the perturbation, and we had an e to the i omega naught t prime, dt prime. That's cos omega t prime, since it's being integrated. Mm, so if we write the cosine out as an exponential, it'll be a term with e to the i omega naught plus omega t prime and an e to the i omega naught minus omega. And then we can do that integral. When we differentiate the exponential, we bring down an i omega naught plus omega, so we get that on the bottom.
to evaluate that between 0 and t. So at 0, these guys are just 1. Now, if our omega is close to omega naught, this thing in the denominator is small. So this will be the biggest term. So near the resonance, omega naught plus omega is much bigger than omega naught minus omega. So that's the rotating wave approximation called. But it, just like in classical mechanics, if you're driving frequencies close to your resonant frequency, you get a bigger effect. So we just drop this term and keep this term. And then we're going to factor out something that makes these two terms look symmetrical. So if we factor out the, the i omega naught minus omega t over 2, so then we have exponentials with opposite signs in the exponent, and then we can write it as a sign. And then if we want the actual probability, so remember we started with assuming that the state was in state A and now we've calculated coefficient B as a function of time. So the square of that thing gives us the probability that we started in A and went to B at some time T. It's approximate here. So there's a, some matrix element squared over h bar squared sine squared of omega naught minus omega t over 2 over omega naught minus omega and the exponential goes away. that. It looks like what you'd expect. It oscillates from zero up to some maximum value, which is set by how big this matrix element is. And then it comes back. So it does a flip and a flop, yeah. So this was something about neutrino oscillations? The same thing happens with neutrinos. If you have three neutrino states. You start in one, there's some mixing due to their masses. So if you start with an electron-type neutrino, because of the mass matrix for the neutrinos, it'll mix into the other ones and oscillate between the di three different types of neutrinos. So it's a three-state problem. But actually, most of the time, well, experimentalists always pick it set up their experiments so they're measuring just an oscillation between two usually because it's too hard to do three by three matrices unless you're really, really tough. So is like, is there similar things going on with other particles? Like the, I heard similar things about leptons and ions. Uh, other particles don't really do these oscillations. Um, 
mostly because uh, they have lots of interactions. So before they get before they get very far, they've interacted with something else, and it's destroyed the coherence. Yep. What is the physical significance of V? Is it the public? Is it V? This is V. So as a coefficient of the perturbation Hamiltonian, and then for the matrix element in the particular states. So it increases V, right? So the probability now will go higher, right? Yes. So this means the two states are coupled. They're more strongly coupled if V is bigger. So now I'm going to plot the same thing as a function of frequency. So at a fixed time, as a function of frequency, it looks like this. So we solve for when the sign is zero. That's when this argument is plus or minus pi. So you'll get, if omega naught is here, you'll get omega naught plus or minus 2 pi over t. So there's zero there and zero there. And there's zeros plus or minus 2 pi, and so on. And it's biggest when omega equals omega naught is then this is going to zero, but this is also going to zero. So they cancel out, but uh, if you just plot it, you'll see that that's where the maximum is. Yeah? Um, sorry, just something on the other slide. Those uh, how it oscillates with the, the probability of it being one state or the other. Is that just the energy Hamiltonian driving that oscillation? So like this thing's whatever it is, like maybe a neutrino or something, I don't know. It's oscillate. Just you don't need to drive it. For neutrinos, you don't need to drive it. So in our problems, what we're talking about is shining some electromagnetic radiation on our two-state system, and that absorbing those photons drive it from the lower state to the higher state. They can also emit those photons and come back down. Okay, so now I'm going to show you this thing as a function of frequency and time. So we'll start out at t, t equals zero, when the probability that it's gone from state A to state B is zero, because at t equals zero it was in state A. So what happens is you build this up, these zeros are moving in from the sides because they have terms that go like one over t, and then eventually Eventually, perturbation theory will break down because we've made this approximation of keeping the lowest order term in T. But if it's oscillating, then uh, we need higher order terms eventually. Okay, good. So, I'm ready to do a quantum question. One of our quantum questions was how does quantum teleportation work? It doesn't work like that. So uh, let's remind ourselves what we just went through. For uh, energy eigenstates, we just have this trivial time dependence. Um, if we had a, a general Hamiltonian like this time-dependent perturbation we have, you could still solve the time evolution by looking at, instead of putting the energy up here, put the Hamiltonian over, a very sh over some very small time interval. You expand this out and keep the first order term, then you're just getting uh, what we found in time dependent perturbation theory. Then you could do it over another short little interval. So you'd have one exponential for this guy, an exponential for that guy over the next little interval. If you take those little intervals very, very small, then you can uh, do this. It's the same kind of, it's just another way of writing or time-dependent time dependent perturbation theory. But if you didn't want to make that approximation, uh, there's a formal exact answer. The formal exact answer is you take e to the minus i integral of the Hamiltonian over any time interval, but when you expand out this exponential, you keep track of time ordering. So just like in our second order ex example, we had a double integral went from t, t double prime went from 0 to t prime, and then there was another integral from 
of t prime from zero to t. So you keep doing that each term. The next order term has three integrals. So they'll go from zero to t double prime, zero to t prime, zero to t. So that the Hamiltonians are ordered. The earliest piece of the Hamiltonian is on the right. And then the next one is on the left as a function of time. So Griffiths never tells you this, but uh, when you do quantum mechanics in graduate school, you make a big deal about this. And the important point for us is that this has to be a unitary matrix because the Hamiltonian is Hermitian. And it's important that it's unitary because that tells you if the su your probabilities added up to one at the initial time, then at the final time, they'll still add up to one because the unitary matrix is just mixing things around. It's not creating or destroying probability. That's another way of seeing why the Hamiltonian has to be Hermitian. If it wasn't Hermitian, you wouldn't conserve probability. Okay, so time evolution is multiplying by unitary matrices. That's the bottom line of this. So let's go back to spins. Another fancy word that Griffiths, I didn't see him use, is entangled states. So remember, our, if we have two electrons in the spin zero configuration, we have up, down, minus, down, up. So the interesting thing is that this is not a product of the wave function of particle one times the wave function of particle two, because it's wave function one times particle wave function two minus a different wave function one times different wave function two. And the beauty of that is uh, I could take one of these electrons to Alpha Centauri, and now I go there and measure its spin. The electron that I left behind, I now know what its spin is. Because if I measured the other one to be up, then the one I left behind is down. That's all. That's the only thing it can be. If I measured it, the one I took away was down, then the one I left behind is up. Now, so Einstein hated that. That's why he hated quantum mechanics, because he called that spooky action at a distance. But it's, it doesn't violate anything that we actually know, and actually you can do experiments and show that it actually works this way. But it was crucial that you had the two guys together, prepared them in some initial state, and then took the one over there. So there was no information transmitted faster than the speed of light. These guys were in causal contact, I moved the electron away at less than the speed of light. Then I did something that told me what I actually had. Okay, so that's what we're going to use for quantum teleportation. Oh, he didn't, that's him sticking out his tongue. So we want, so Alice, it's always Alice and Bob, right? Yeah, Alice. Alice has an electron that's in some state. It's got a coefficient alpha for up and beta for down. And she wants to teleport that, that quantum state to another place. So in principle, if you took all the particles in your body knew exactly what quantum state they were, and then made a copy somewhere else where every particle was in exactly the same quantum state, you would think that you have uh, moved yourself over there. That's the idea of teleportation. But to do this, what she has to do is get two more electrons, electron two and three, put them into some entangled state. Let's say it's a spin zero state. Then she gives this blue electron, electron three, to Bob. Bob goes to wherever it is that we want to do the teleportation to. And he takes electron three with him. But it's in this entangled state with electron two. Very important. So now our total wave function is the product of the wave function that we want to teleport times the wave function of these extra guys two and three. And if you write it out, there are these terms. There's the alpha spin up times this plus beta um, times this, and I had a one over root two from here. Okay, so that's that's straightforward. Now, Alice does a measurement. She has electron one and electron two. Bob has electron three in Alpha Centauri. 
So she can do a measurement on electrons one and two, and she just she sets up her apparatus so there's four possible outcomes. So these guys we recognize. The minus combination is a spin zero combination of one and two. The plus is the triplet, but m equals zero, or sm equals zero. And then this is some linear combination of the sm equals one and sm equals minus one triplet states. So this is just some rearrangement of a complete set of states. So those are all the possible outcomes of any spin measurement. Or we can make a spin measurement that gives these as the possible outcomes. There's, and it's a complete set, so there's no other possible outcome. Yep. So wait, you're saying that like if you had, you're essentially saying take this guy's state, push it into that one, essentially? Um, like this electron, like one person has one electron, the other person has the other, taking one state, this one. Okay, we have one that we want to teleport. We prepare two others in an entangled spin zero state. We take one of those away. Now we measure the two that are left behind and figure out which of these two states they're in. Now, because it's a complete set of state, remember we have this completeness relation. We can write one as the sum of these outer products. So if I just multiply one times the wave function I had, but where I write one as this, it'll project out the different possibilities. So if we'll do a simple case, if I take this guy, um, when I take the overlap with the states I had before, so I need to take an overlap, the conjugate of this, with these states, okay? So psi 1, 2, uh, minus is the spin zero combination. I take the spin zero combination of one, two, overlap with this state. So I'll pick out one, two, or red and green. So uh, I can pick out terms where they have the opposite spin and keep track of where the alphas and betas and minus signs go. So when I do that, I'll get terms with alphas and betas, and those guys are correlated with some particular spin direction of the third electron. Because I only took the overlap of electrons one and two because those are the ones I measured. I still have a wave function for electron three, which has not been measured yet. So this is uh, the state that we have. Now we do a measurement, it picks out one of these states. There's four states and they all have equal probability one quarter. So she'll just get one of those states when she does the measurement. Then she gets on her cell phone and calls Bob and tells him which state she got or radio or whatever you want. So the signal will travel at the speed of light to wherever Bob is. And she'll say it's one of those four possible states. So for example, she finds this psi 1, 2 minus, then Bob knows that he has this wave function. Because she's measured her electrons and she's got this, so she knows that that goes with his electron in this state. So now he knows what state he has, and then he just does a unitary transformation, which means he sets up some Hamiltonian that rotates the phases in a particular way. So we need to just multiply the wave function by minus one. Yeah. I thought, um, so is there symmetry? So could Bob have been the one who's measuring it telling us? Um, could have, but then we wouldn't have teleported. Yeah. He, he could have done the measurement and told her, but then he would have found some, we'd write it as a different way and it shoot. Yeah, it's symmetrical, but it's not as interesting for our problem. Because we want to transport th that particular state for electron one somewhere else. So by doing her measurement, he knows he's in this state. He does a unitary transformation, just multiplying by minus one. That puts him in this state. So now his electron is in the initial state of electron one. Electron one is in, now in some crazy state. 
and you can do the same kind of unitary transformation trick for any of the possible four possible outcomes. So he always ends up with the electron 3 in the initial state of electron 1. So electron 3 is in the original state, electron 1 is in a new state. Nobody ever found out what alpha and beta were. All we know is that electron 3 has alpha and beta, whatever alpha and beta electron 1 had, but the measurement didn't tell us what alpha and beta were. And you can show that if you'd done that, then it wouldn't have teleported. So. If you knew what alpha and beta were, they would teleport. If you measured the spin of electron 1 to see if it was spin up or spin down, then you would have destroyed the state. And you can check that if, if, you, if you'd done that to electron 3, it wouldn't be in that, it would be either up or down if you measured its spin. So the point is to get a copy of the initial state electron wave function somewhere else. So that we did. We weren't able to figure out what state it's in, but we didn't need to to do the teleportation. Yeah. You can, so in principle, you can do this for any quantum state, but there's a few practical problems, right? It was crucial that you were able to take part of the entangled state, move it to wherever you want to go, so that means you actually have to transport something anyway. You can just do it in advance. You also have to transport, transport it so it doesn't uh, interact with anything that messes up its wave function. So you have to transport it very carefully. And so if you have a complicated state, it's not going to be easy to transport a complicated state in such a way that it never interacts or interacts very little over the time it takes to transport it to this transport site. So it's not like it's a, a trivial thing to accomplish practically. It's trivial theoretically. But it, in principle, it can be done. And it has been done over short distances, like a few miles. Yeah? So is that the only kind of transportation, uh, teleportation that we know? Yeah. Like, so there's no way to like get something to another place that it's never been? Well, it depends what you mean. I, I was just saying, like you, you said you had to transport so it first. I have to transport something. Okay. And then that something ends up in exactly the same state, quantum state, as the original thing at the beginning. So the way the transport works is we take the original thing, we destroy it, we make another exact copy somewhere else, which is exactly the way it works on Star Trek, actually. They, they vaporize someone on the ship, then a new person appears <laughs> on the planet in exactly the same state as the person who was just vaporized. You can't duplicate the state. Except that one episode of Riker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah? Teleportation happens as soon as uh, the person, the girl, Alice, measures state, the state with electron one and two, right? Well, up to some unitary matrix, yes. She had to tell him, Bob the she unitary matrix to get it in exactly the same state. She has to tell him which state she found, and then he has to do a unitary matrix transformation on his state. No, doing the, we have to go. It's not doing a calculation. It's putting in some, putting it in some energy state that make the phases change in a particular way. Okay, I'll see you on Friday. <laughs>